This is the 40th and final message on the book of Revelation. I know it's, it's a sad moment. We won't feel like we'll understand what's going on. Ashton, can I get you to cut the lights for us? Okay, end up. 70 weeks, 70 weeks. Well, we'll continue to preach, brother. <laughs> Move on to another subject. But um, yes, this is the 40th week. I actually looked at it, and at least according to my, my directory, this is, I number my messages as I go through, and this is number 40 in, in all those. And so we began back in the, in, in the month of January. We actually took 10 weeks in going through the, um, uh, the biblical prophecy, did a little background thing there, and so 30 of these messages have come directly from the book of Revelation. And as you look at all those pictures that just came up, this time individually, just to kind of tease you just a little bit more one last time, it's just a, a reminder of the trek that we've had, at least that I've had. I hope it's been a good trek for you. It's been a great trek for me, a great a time of excitement to, to really look at the book of Revelation. Um, honestly, it's the first time I've really done a major study of my own in it. Um, I had it in seminary. But, you know, one of the things I've always struggled with is I don't want to just to, to swallow everything that I've taught, been taught. And so um, it's been my passion as we've gone through this year to really study this book out and not just accept the traditions um, that have been taught. And so as we've gone through, we have seen the things that were, the things that are, those were the, the seven messages to the churches, and then the things that shall be. And we've spent many many weeks talking about the things that shall be. And in the things that shall be, we talked about the throne room of God. We talked about the, the uh, lamb as he had been slain, coming and taking the book out of the, the hand of him who sat upon the throne and how he began to open up the, the seals. And we saw the seven seals. And we refer to them as the seven seal judgments, but really it really isn't necessarily God's judgment upon us. It's just God handing them, us over to ourselves. And, and as we saw those seven seals and the seven trumpets, those were things that, that we've done to ourselves, and will do to ourselves. Those were, so in a sense, God's judgment many times is just taking his grace, his hand of grace away from us and letting us act like God. And God says, fine, you want to be God? You go ahead and be God, and see what you, see what you get out of it. And so then we moved from those, the, the, the seals and from the trumpets, and that was at the end of chapter 10, where the, there's the trumpets, and then into chapter 11 is where we see the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel's vision. And the first three and a half years of that vision is the time when the witnesses will be on the earth, and then the, um, the, the witnesses will be killed, and they'll be laid out in the streets for three days, and the world will rejoice, but then they will be raptured, they will be resurrected, um, and then the final three and a half years will begin, and that'll be the time of the beast on the earth, and that'll be the time when there's people should be worrying at that point about the mark of the beast. And we talked at that time about how, you know, people talking about the mark of the beast and everything now, but that's not until the second half of that final 70th week of Daniel's vision. So, you know, I don't think any of us know, really know right now, what that mark's going to be, who the beast really is. We can conjecture, people can say this, they think it's this person, that person. The reality is, he may not even be on the scene right now, because I don't know the day or the hour of Christ's return. And so I believe that the, the harpazo of the church, the rapture of the church, comes it probably in Revelation chapter 10. Most pre-tribulation, pre, people who believe in pre-tribulation rapture, they think it's in chapter 4. I hope it's in chapter 4. I don't see that. Anyways, so I think it's after the seals and the trumpets, but before the, the 70th week of Daniel, which begins in Revelation 11. And so I don't feel like I have to really worry about that mark of the beast because it's not during my time. 
However, I do want to what? Be ready. Keep my eyes open just in case what? I'm wrong, yeah. <laughs> is there a possibility that I'm wrong? Sure there is. I mean, I, I, you know, people say no. I, I, I know that I'm, I'm always right. You know? That's just a hard thing, especially when it comes to prophecy. Do you know when you know how prophecy is going to be fulfilled? When? After it happens. You know, a lot of times, even when it happens, we, we, we've missed it. Usually it's after the fact that we can look back hindsight with 2020. But God says that we're blessed if we read this book. And we understand these things. So he's put them, and what we're going to see this morning is he tells John, and he tells through the angel, he says, not to seal the words of this book. So I think there's something important about that, that these words are not sealed. Things that we can learn, things that we can understand. And so from there, we, we moved on then into the, the timing of the end, where the, the seven bulls of God's wrath are poured out, and that ends and culminates with the, the battle of Armageddon, Armageddon, where the, the nations um, gather together against Christ, and then Christ comes, and they have the, the, the uh, wedding supper of the Lamb. The bride is the church who comes. And then, um, and then after that, we have the millennial reign of Christ. And at the end of the millennial reign of Christ, the 1,000 years, Satan is released from the pit again, and he one more time gathers up the nations against Christ. And at that time, Christ subdues all the nations, and, and that is the end. And then we go into the, the great white throne judgment, which we talked about last week. And we saw how the dead, small and great, will, will come before the throne, and they will be judged according to their works. That's been our memory verse for the whole month, Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 to 15, about the great white throne judgment. Now, if you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, you won't be there at that great white throne judgment. However, as we saw last week, you will be, you will receive a judgment seat, the judgment seat of Christ prior to that. However, you won't be before the great white throne judgment. And what we see at the great white throne judgment is that everybody is judged according to their works, but whoever's name's not written, who's not found in the Lamb's Book of Life, will be cast into the lake of fire. And that is literal. That is real. And so we, we, do the, we see the Lamb's Book of Life. Today, we want to move into the last two chapters of the book of Revelation, chapter 21 and chapter 22. Now, that is a long reading, okay? And it's all about the... Um, the New Jerusalem. And so what I would like to challenge you with is as we go through this, I'm not going to read chapter 21 and 22 for the sake of time, but we will be going through this together as we go through. And so I want to challenge you to, to pay attention and look at this as we go. But we are going to be looking at this New Jerusalem. And as we look at the New Jerusalem, we're going to look at the descent of the New Jerusalem. Okay, It's coming to the earth. or It's coming to the earth. Secondly, we're going to look at the description of the New Jerusalem. We're going to look at the demographics of the New Jerusalem. And finally, we're going to look at the declarations that are made at the end of this book to us. Okay? So we want to look at each one of these uh, quickly, but each one of these as we go. First of all, the descent of the New Jerusalem. And we're told that in the book of uh, chapter 21, he says, verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and will be their God. And so the first thing I see in this descent is that there is going to be a new heaven in a new earth. That is an important point, one that we kind of we gloss over sometimes. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. So when the new Jerusalem comes down, where it will come down to? A new earth. Do you get it? 
First Peter, Peter tells us in his epistle, tells us that the, the earth that you live in live on right now, what's going to happen to it? It's going to be destroyed with fire, with fervent heat. That's exactly right. It's going to be destroyed. With, and there are many people who, who conjecture that that fervent heat, that fervent fire, is going to be a nuclear war, nuclear blast. I don't think so. I don't think that's the case at all. I don't know how it's going to happen, but what I do know is that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And I believe that it's going to be new because of the things that we read in this chapter. I don't think this is new, spiritually speaking. I don't think it's rejuvenated. I don't think it's a recreation, if you would, a, 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 a cleansing new. I think it's new. I think it's different. And we'll talk about that as we, as we go. There's a new heaven and a new earth. Secondly, we see the arrival of the new Jerusalem. How does it arrive? It descends. Kind of an interesting concept for a, a, a city. Floating out of the sky, kind of like I had the graphic earlier coming, coming down. You know, it'll be it'll probably a little, bit more, a little bit better. But it's, and, and this is going to be impressive later on as we, as we talk about this. Okay? This, this new Jerusalem is going to come, descent, come coming down from the sky. And now finally what we read here, though, is that we continue on. That it says that God himself will be with them. Right? It says, behold, the tabernacle of God is going to be with them. And then go on in verse 4. It says, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no sorrow, no crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Does that sound familiar? What do they sound like? Huh? Revelation 1. But also what we just read about who? The king. Jesus, the king who is coming, whose name was written on him, what? Faithful and true. This is true and faithful. It's the same words. It's, again, go back into the Hebrew. It's chesed nemet. Chesed nemet. Faithful and true. Faithful and true. He is the one who is faithful. He's the one who has great integrity, who can be counted on, and that he is true. He's like the plumb line. You know it's what it is. You know what righteousness is when you look at God. And so God is faithful and true. And so the faithful is testimony that this is going to happen. If you doubt that this is going to happen, who are you questioning? God himself, because God himself, he who sat upon the throne says, these words are true and faithful. These words are true and faithful. And so when people come to the book of Revelation, again, I, I know I harp on this so much, but it's so important because, again, when you come to the book of Revelation, and, and clearly some of the things we're going to talk about today, you're going to look at it and you're going to say, what? There's no way. That doesn't make sense. Nah, can't be. But the thing you're going to have to ask yourself is, who do you believe? Do you believe your own logic? Do you believe the logic of theologians? Or do you believe God, the one who sits upon the throne? I opt for God. Even when my own brain has a hard time comprehending how things can be so, I believe God is true and faithful, or faithful and true. And so, if there's a, if there's a dispute between me and God, I'll opt for God. Does that make sense? And so, his words are faithful and true. Now, the description. What does it say about this New Jerusalem? Okay. Now I want you to skip down to um, verse 10, and it says, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, 
Having the glory of God, her light was like the most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And also she had great and high wall with twelve gates and twelve angels at the gates, and names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city is laid out as a square, its length as its great as its breadth. And he measured the city with a reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. That means it's a what? It's a cube. It's a cube. Okay? Then he measured its walls, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. The construction of its wall was of jasper. The city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the, temple, and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. But there shall be by no means enter into it anything of the fowls or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Chapter 22. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was a tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit or each um, yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp, nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Then he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things that must surely take place. Now, so as I read through all that, we read all this description of this new Jerusalem. The first thing we see about this new Jerusalem that I want to talk about here is its size. How big is it? It's big, right? So give me, what did it say specifically? No, that's 144 cubits is this wall. That's the wall is 144 cubits. But what about the city itself? 12,000 furlongs. Oh, I had to turn this back on. 12,000 stadia. Okay, the, the Greek word is stadia. Okay, it's a, it's, a, it's a measurement that's there. Okay, each stadia, each Ptolemaic stadia equals 0.1149537 miles. Is that exact enough for you? Okay. So the question is, what does, what, what does 12,000 Ptolemaic stadia equal according to our miles, right? Well, the answer to that is 1,379.44 miles. So this new Jerusalem will be 1,379.44 miles long, wide, and 
high. High. We said it's a cube, right? Didn't it say that the breadth, the length, and the width were all equal? Do you believe that's true? Now, that would be 2,624,873,906.1283,84 cubic miles. That's a lot of property, isn't it? Now, think about this. If if wide is the gate that leads to destruction, and many there are that go there, and, few, and, and narrow is the path that leads to life, and few there be that find it, if there's only 2.6 billion people who have ever lived on the earth that have gotten saved, that means in this city, you'll have one cubic mile to yourself. For us introverts, that's at a very exciting moment. <laughs> that means the nearest person to me, at the closest, will potentially be a half a mile away. Now, I say I got a half a mile because if I put myself directly in the middle like I'd want to do, right? That means there's a half a mile. And so if they're standing on the edge of my property, quote, unquote, my property, God's property. Anyways, my, my little cube in the cube, right? That means they're a half a mile away. So, but as I heard someone say years ago, but remember, thinking that you have all this privacy, the streets are made of what? Gold. What kind of gold? Transparent. Transparent gold. That means everybody sees you anyway. <laughs> That means there's, there's none of this all about me stuff. Think about it. I mean, that's my first, as, as the introvert, that's my first thought is, yes, think of all this size, I own myself. I mean, even if there's, what, four times that many people, I still have my own cubic half mile. <laughs> that's amazing to think about, huh? I mean, even if there's 10 billion people living in that cube. 10 billion people living in that cube. Now, this picture and it's funny, I can't find any picture on the web that really does anything justice. Because you look at this picture of this cube coming down, and where is it coming down? It's coming down on a city. Anybody recognize the city? It's Jerusalem. It's Temple Mount. And it looks like it's only as big as what? The Temple Mount. <laughs> well, let's, 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 put some, uh, let's put some justice here. This is a map of the Middle East. Jerusalem pretty much is the center. That, that Temple Mount there, that's pretty close to being center. You know what that square represents? 1,379.44 square miles. Now, I couldn't do the cubes here, okay? So, but just kind of picture coming at you for 1,000 miles, okay? So it goes all the way from the southern, southern part of Egypt and beyond all the way to, to the north part of Turkey. Now, I think it's really interesting. Is actually what I used is Mecca all the way up to Samson, Turkey is, is basically 1,380 miles in that ballpark. Isn't that something to think about? That's the size of this city that's descending. Now, I know not many of us have ever been to the Middle East. Lawrence is understanding this. He's comprehending the distance here. He sees this a little bit. I understand the Israel part because I've been to Israel, but you can see that Israel is kind of like a what? Uh, the little toenail compared to all this stuff. So I, I wanted to put it in something that maybe we would all kind of understand. There we go. Eastern United States. You know what the square represents? 1,379.44 miles, square miles that is. And so that New Jerusalem would take up the entire eastern United States. And some would say that the 51st states is Canada anyway. So that, that includes then eastern Canada as well. Amazing thing to think about, isn't it? That's how big the New Jerusalem will be. Do you believe that? Now the hard part, as we talk about its size, the troposphere 
is, is that part of the atmosphere, which goes anywhere from ground level to 10 miles up. After we have the troposphere, we have the stratosphere. The stratosphere goes anywhere from that 10 miles to the 32 miles going forward, right? After the stratosphere, we have the mesosphere. The mesosphere goes up to 53 miles. After the mesosphere, we have the thermosphere. The thermosphere goes up to 240 miles outside the Earth's atmosphere. Does anybody know where the, the space shuttle, the International Space Station, uh, orbits to the Earth? No. It's in this thermosphere. It's at about 200 miles. The New Jerusalem is going to be what? 1,377.44. Now, some have rounded that to 1,500 miles. I'm being nice and bringing it back down, right? It's a little bit easier to understand 1,300 rather than 1,500, right? So think about this. 240 miles. And then we get into the exosphere, which is kind of a blend something into we're not really sure where our atmosphere ends and the, and the, the, the concept of space begins. Because if we say that we have the shuttle going up, and they're docking with the space station, we call them what? Astronauts, because where are they going to be? In space. And so we don't think of them being just on a plane, and a guy jumping from the plane and you know, doing the hang gliding or the, the, the parachuting type stuff, because they're in our atmosphere, right? And so these guys, we picture them not being in our atmosphere. 1,377 miles high. This is the one that causes the logic of Bob, the mathematical, scientific side of Bob, to go nutso. But there is a key that I have got to continually go back to. And it's not just that God is God. There's a new earth. There's a new heaven and a new earth. It's not what I picture. We picture realness as, we picture this, right? We think this is it. This is everything. I mean, I can feel it. I can touch it. I can smell it. I can see it. It pertains to my senses, so therefore it's got to be real. It's only real according to my finiteness. But God is spirit. And in the beginning... God created what? The heavens and the earth. By faith, we believe that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So that the things which exist, or the things that are seen, were made from what? Things that are not seen, that didn't exist. And so before Genesis 1-1, when God created the first, if you would, heaven and the earth, the one that we live on anyway, what was there? No, there was God. Even an expanse would be what? Would be matter. That's exactly right. Think about it. We comprehend everything in time, space, and matter. We're, we're, we're pro we, we live in it. You know? So time, we have past, present, and future. With space, we have the X, Y, and the Z plane, the three-dimensional plane. With matter, we have solids, liquids, and gases. With God, we have the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Isn't it neat how he even placed the, the, the testimony of who he is in his creation itself? But I live in that. So 
take me outside of time, space, and matter, I haven't got a clue. Take me outside of this earth, what I understand, the, the, um, we are all, my mind's blanking out on me now, what are we all made out of? We are all something based, carbon. We're all carbon based, carbon based. But the earth is what? So, so, someone was talking to me recently about this. What is the earth? Is it carbon based? Someone was telling me that it was silicon. Is it? Silicon? Yeah, it was you. I heard talking about that. Maybe it was at the, that, that debate, yeah. A, a, a silicon base. Isn't that interesting? And so it's, it's, that's the first time I, I, I heard that. So I'm, I'm, I'm stuck in this. And so this new heaven and this new earth, does it have to be a silicon-based earth with carbon-based people? The answer is no. 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 Why? Because God's God. God's God's God. And as he spoke into existence back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, can't he do that in Revelation chapter 21? It's an amazing thing. So, the New Jerusalem will be 1,379 miles in height, or 77.44. And finally, we've got to remember, there's a new heaven and a new earth. Okay? So, now, its size, we saw what it was. What about its walls? Its walls are 144 cubits high. That is 216 feet, each cubit being 18 inches. Okay? So we talk about, we talk about Goliath and his size um, by according to cubits. Well, the same cubits are here. So it's 216 feet high. Some say it's 216 feet thick. It doesn't change my theology one way or the other. You can say it's 216 feet high, or you can say it's 216 feet thick. In fact, you could even say it was 216 feet thick and high. It wouldn't bother me. It's just, regardless of either way, it's what? It's big. It's massive. It's impressive. Do you get the idea of what's happening here? What else do we know? We know that its foundations, okay, are each, there's 12 of them, are each decorated with a different stone. In each one of those foundations, as well, has the name of one of the 12 apostles written on it. Now, this is a lot of fun. This takes up a lot of debate because people look at this one and they start to, 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 they, they debate, the, they debate the, the gnat here rather than looking at the big picture, right? And that's exactly right. Who's the 12th apostle? Is it really Matthias or is it Paul? You know, there's always the, the, the debate here. It didn't, you know, God doesn't talk about 13 apostles. He talks about 12. And so did the, did the apostles get ahead of the game there in Acts chapter uh, 1 and 2 and when they chose Matthias? Should they have waited for God to choose his 12th apostle? Because clearly he chose who? Paul was the apostle of the Gentiles. My answer is, I don't know. And I don't care. <laughs> it, it really doesn't matter. The, the excitement of this is that the, these apost apostolic names being written upon the foundation is what? Now, God remembered them. That's important. But the testimony of their testimony is written in the foundations of the New Jerusalem. Do you get it? God is providing the testimony of what he thinks of these apostolic messengers. messengers. When you read the book of the Bible, the New Covenant, the books of the New Testament, if you would, they're written by who? The apostles. 
Many people would like to tell you that they're written just by men. Men. But God says, this is according to his testimony, as being true and faithful, right? Faithful and true. That those who will dwell in this city will dwell in this city based upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, the book of Ephesians tells us that we are being built together as a holy temple before the Lord, and we are being built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And so I think it's apropos and neat, if you would, if you can use that word for the Bible, that here we have the very new Jerusalem itself, the very place, heaven, if you would, that we're going to dwell, and the foundations of it are going to be the writings of the apostles. But we're told as well that it's going to have 12 gates, and each of the gates is going to be made of pearl, and each of the gates will have on it one of the names of the tribes of Israel. Now, I find this is very interesting as well, because I know that in Jesus Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. But that through Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, in the cross of Christ, that God has taken two, both, and brought them together into one new man and has broken down the middle wall of partition, which is the law, and thereby has brought and made peace. And so that we come before him together. And so in this new Jerusalem, some would like to make this a church thing. Would like to say that the church has supplanted Israel. But over and over and over again in the New Testament, we are given testimony of how God hasn't set aside the nation of Israel. But rather, he has, in this day of mystery, he has set aside Israel so that he could open up the gospel to the Gentiles, that's you and I, and that once again he would come, in the book of Revelation we see this, and he would begin to work one more time with the nation of Israel. And so he brings us all together as one in Christ. And so here in this new Jerusalem, think about it, Jerusalem being the capital city of who? Israel, but it's God's chosen places where God chose to place his name. We have both Israel and the church dwelling together as what? One. One. Because it has always, in a sense, been one. What has always been the source of salvation? God. I should say who, right? Because it's not just what. But it's faith in the plan of God that has been the source of salvation. It's been the path of salvation. Think about it. Were people saved in the Old Testament by offering the sacrifices? No, it wasn't. It was in their faith in the God who would accept the sacrifice because God had declared the path to do that. Does that make sense? If God hadn't said, do this, and they did it, would they ever be saved? No. But rather they had to have faith in the plan of God. And so, understand this for a moment, and keep this in, in context. It is not the sacrifice of Christ in and of itself by which you are saved. 
okay? It is the fact that God, before the foundations of the world, had made that as his plan of salvation. Does it make sense? There have been a lot of people who have died for others, haven't there? But that doesn't get them to heaven. But because God determined that he was going to come to the earth, that he was going to live that pure and perfect life, and that he would offer himself as our sacrifice, that is the reason why the sacrifice of Christ is the means for us to go there, and that no, by no other means can we, can we have enter into the presence of God the Father. And so here, in this new Jerusalem, we have dwelling, then, these ones, and we'll see about this in just a moment. And so we saw its size, its walls, its foundations, its gates, but there is, in chapter 22, also its life. It's source of life, if you would. It's, it's the product of its life. And the first thing we see is we see the water of life, the river of life. In chapter 22, we see that this river of life proceeds from where? The throne of God. Water is what? It's life, isn't it? We, we talk about it, life. We talk about it as a source of life. We talk about it without... You can fast, but ultimately you have to do what? you got to drink. Jesus said, I am the water of life. If any man thirsts, let him what? Let him drink of me. That's exactly it. Let him drink of me. Let him come to me. Let him drink of me. And so we have this river of life which proceeds from the throne of God. And so I think of Psalm 1 as well that talks about, Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law doth he meditate day and night, and he shall be like a tree that is planted by the rivers of water, or the rivers of life, if you would, rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season. His leaf shall not wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. And so what is that river in Psalm 1? What is the river in, in Jeremiah 17 when it says that the blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, for he shall be like a he shall be like a tree planted in, um, by the rivers. It's the word of God. It's the spirit of God. It's the truth of God. Boil all down, it's God. It's God. If you delight yourself in the Lord, I know he'll give you the desires of your heart. That's not where I'm going, though. If you delight yourself in the Lord, what's going to be one of the very first things that's going to be evident in your life? What did Jesus say in John chapter 15? If you abide in me, then what? My words are going to abide in you. And you shall ask what you want, and it will be done for you. Right? In John chapter 8, Jesus said to those Jews who believed on him, If you are my disciples, and if you abide in my word, then you are my disciples indeed, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So yes, I think that this part of this river of life that we see today, it very clearly is God's word. But it's only because it's God's word. Do you get it? It's not commentaries about God's word. It's God's word. He said that he'll send forth his word like rain to accomplish the purpose for which he has sent it to accomplish. Secondly, we see the tree of life. Now, this is interesting because the tree of life, again, goes all the way back to where? The Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 2 in chapter 3, but Genesis chapter 2. And in that garden, honestly, we saw how many special trees? 
2. There was the tree of life and the tree of death. The tree of knowledge of good and evil, the tree of death. Because the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So there is the decision between life and death. But here in the presence of God, there's only the tree of life. Life. The tree of life. And on this tree of life, again, we have this number of fulfillment, the number 12. And on this tree, there are 12 different fruits. And each of the fruits will bear forth, bring forth fruit each of the 12 months. Again, there are a lot of people who like to conjecture and just spiritualize all of this because everything is in 12s, a number of fulfillment. And so they spiritualize everything and say that none of this is really literally true. It just all means it's, it's all spiritually true. <laughs> I'm not quite sure how you have spiritual fulfillment without any literal understanding. So, but there are 12 different fruits that are producing throughout the year, each bringing sustenance, each bringing refreshment to those who dwell in the city. Finally, we see there is the light of life as well. Again, this is one of these things that's going to drive um, your, your understanding. Not so, if you really meditate upon it. What is the, the source of light that's here in the city? S-O-N, not S-U-N. Yeah, this, it's God. That's exactly right. God is the light. There is no need for what? The sun or for any lamps or anything else. And so here we have no moon, no, no sun. We have God. Now, this makes me reflect upon Genesis chapter 1 again. Because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, yes? And the earth was formless and empty. And darkness covered the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. There was evening and there was morning the first day. God saw the light. God said what? It's good. There was evening, there was morning the first day. What did God make on day one? Did he make the sun? No. When did he make the sun? Later. Good. Good answer. A safe answer. Later. The fourth day. He made it on the fourth day. The sun, moon, and the stars were all made on the fourth day. But what did he make on day three? The earth. No, he already made the earth. The plants. He brought forth the dry ground. Okay. Note that on day two, he separated the waters above from the waters beneath, which means that the whole world was covered by water. And on day three, he brought forth the dry ground from the water. And then on the dry ground, he brought forth vegetation, vegetation, trees and stuff like that. What do we know that trees need to live? Sunlight. People say sunlight. They need water, of course, but there was tons of water. Ah, that's exactly right, Don. That's the point I'm going to. We don't know how they grow under God's light, but according to our own understanding of botany and stuff like that, we... Th we make sure that when we have plants, we took the, the plants from in here, they're in other rooms now, we want to put them in at least indirect light because life needs light. Life needs light. We equate that to sunlight, that there is a need for sunlight. But here 
in the new Jerusalem, there will be no need for the Son because God himself will be the light just as he was in the beginning. Isn't that awesome? A new creation. I can't, I can't wait to be there. People say, what's it going to be like? All I can tell you is what the Bible says. I haven't got a clue. I haven't been there. But I'll send you a postcard. You know? I don't know if there will be a postal service. If it's a postal service, it will be a whole lot better than the U.S. US postal service, right? Anyways, and so that's the description. Now the demographics. Demographics, what's the New Jerusalem going to be composed of? Well, first of all, we're told that there are going to be the heirs. And the heirs are those who overcome. The overcomers who will inherit all things. And we're told in James or in John, 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, that whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Our faith. So those who overcome, and what is the, that overcoming? It's faith. Faith. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, beginning at verse 11, we read, In him that is Christ, also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. That we, who first trusted in Christ, should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So we're told that God has predestined us that in him to have this inheritance. Turn back to Galatians chapter 4. It should be just a page or two toward the front of the Bible from there. Galatians 4, 4 to 7. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And, and if a son, then you are what? You're an heir of God through Jesus Christ. And one more, to turn back to Romans 8. Romans 8, beginning of verse 15. It says, You did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Do you comprehend the vastness of the gift that God has given to you? This time of the year, this Advent time, when we, 
we consider the, the, the coming of, of Christ, the incarnation of God. Honestly, we refer to God's gift as, as what or as who? Jesus Christ. That he is the greatest gift and the salvation that he's brought. But do you comprehend the vastness of the gift? It's not just you don't get, you know, you get a, a pass to hell. You know, you, you got the get out of jail free card. You know, in Monopoly, you know, the, you can go past, go past, you know, the, go, you know, advance token to the nearest railroad, whatever. The, this isn't I just get out of hell. This is I'm an heir of God. I'm a joint heir with, with Christ. It's God's purpose for my life. It's what he has called me for that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brethren. I am not just going there as a citizen, though Philippians chapter 3 says, my citizenship is in heaven from whence also we look for the coming of our Savior, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile bodies that they may be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able to even subdue all things to himself. But I'm not going there just as a citizen. I'm going as kin. As an adoptive child. Do you get it? This isn't just a city. This is daddy's home. And you remember when we talked about the bride? And we talked about the picture of the Jewish bride? And we said we're going to come back to the New Jerusalem. We're going to talk about this a little bit. And we talked about how Jesus said, you know, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me, for in my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. The whole picture of the Jewish uh, wedding ceremony, where the, the contract is made, the covenant is, is made, and so the, the, the bride is there to prepare herself for the groom, but the groom is off preparing the, the, the home, the, the dwelling place for the two of them. And we said that that dwelling place, almost without, um, without a, a change, invariably was where? The father's house. Somewhere in the father's mansion area. Okay? He may have been able, if they had enough property, he may have had his own property and his own house that was there, but most of the time, he was in another room in the father's house. And so Jesus uses that picture and he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Guess where the place is at? It's in the New Jerusalem. It's in God's house. And you're not going as just a citizen. You're going as family. Now isn't there a difference between guests in your house and family? I mean, I think about that difference between your kids and my kids. And you should think about the difference between your kids and my kids. I care about your kids. But honestly, I'm helping my kids go to college. Make sense? I fed my kids on Thanksgiving. I don't know about you guys, but your kids. Any of you guys feed my kids? Don't go. Don't answer that question. Anyways. I don't want to know if my kids were hopping houses. Anyways, <laughs> food, food, food. No, seriously, though. But I took care of mine this weekend. Does that make sense? I clothed my kids. Matt needs two new tennis shoes. 
Anybody going to buy them 10 shoes? You all say what? No, that's your job, right? That's my job. I'll take care of them. I'm going to buy them new tennis shoes. My daddy. I'm going to go live with daddy. Abba is the Aramaic word for daddy. I'm going to go live with daddy. I'm not going to go live with the tyrannical ruler to whom I submitted so that I could escape his, his wrath. How do you view him? How do you see him? What are you looking forward to? This is a place for the heirs. Heirs. Not just citizens. Heirs. But what do we see is not going to be allowed? Because it states it right here again. Just in case you missed it, as we went through the great white throne, when we get to the new Jerusalem, God wants you to know again. Because God wants you to live where? With him. God doesn't want you to miss out, but he wants you to know that there's going to be some outcasts. Who are the outcasts? First of all, it's the cowardly. Now, it's really interesting. You have on your sermon note sheets, if you have those, two references to this word. It is also, in some of the versions, translated as the fearful. This is not the word for phobos, meaning having fear like that. But rather, this is the ones who are faithless. And the references that you have there are the references to the disciples, where they're on the water, and the storm is about them, and they're crying out to Jesus, Lord, save us! And he said, Oh, you faithless, you fearful ones, you cowardly. These are the ones he said, it's not going to be there. The faithless ones, the cowardly. He said, wow. The ones who didn't have it in them to face up to their own failures, their own weakness, to the culture of the world, to understand who God was and said, I'm of God. Remember what Jesus said? He who denies me before men, I will deny before my Father. But he who declares me before men, I will declare before my Father and of the angels. One of the testimonies of the truth of your salvation is that you will open up your mouth, you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. So, are you an heir? Are you a coward? Are you his? Are you, I mean, are you proud to declare that you are his child? You're his son? I look at my guys. Will they admit that they're my son? Or are they, are, are, are they fearful to declare that they're my kids? That's the picture. What about your daddy? The unbelieving, the apistois, the ones who have no faith, the ones who aren't, have no trust. And as we talked about in the Greek class last Monday, this idea of pistuo is that you have faith into something, that it's inside of it, that when you believe, when you trust in that Greek mindset, it's like you have become into it. You've become part and parcel with it. It's not that you just believe on it. I believe that if I 
flip the switch, the lights will go on. That's, a, that's an application, that's a picture of it. But this kind of belief is, is, is a committed belief that you're willing to offer your life for this belief. That it's not one of these things that you're going to say, well, I believe it now, but maybe not tomorrow. It depends on what the pressure is upon me. You know, if, if you're holding them 16 to my head, I don't believe it. But if I, if I get to walk along the way and I get to hear a good message, if I get to see some good singing, or hear some good singing, I'm what? I'm a believer. People in China, people in the 1040 window, people in Indonesia, people in India, guess what? They're dying for it. If they're believers, they're true. The abominable. This word derives from stink. These are the raunchy. These are the ones who are stinky. Now, these, these are the ones that we can pick on, right? These are, the, these are the, the ones that we look out in the world and go, oh, those guys are just. But you know what? We're going to talk about this in a moment. Lying lips are what, Andrew? They're an abomination to the Lord. Lying lips are stinky, are putrid, are raunchy, rancid to God. We have our standards, the ones we say are raunchy and rancid and abominable and putrid and stinky. But this is according to God's standards, not ours. The murderers. Jesus said, you have heard it said, you shall not commit murder. But I say unto you, if you call your brother an idiot, you've murdered him. This is a tough list, isn't it? I mean, it's easy when we, when we think big picture here and we say, oh, you know, it's, it's those guys. But when we take the uh, Sermon on the Mount, our Lord's own teachings, and we begin to apply it to ourselves, we start to ask ourselves, hmm, this list of outcasts, this is starting to, uh, starting to get a little close to home, isn't it? The sexually immoral, porne, pornos, pornoi. Do you hear any English derivative coming there? The ones who are into pornography? You may not be even just looking at pictures. Jesus said, You've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've done that. Ladies, it goes for you too. The sexually immoral. Those who are doing something sexually that is outside the bounds of what God created you for. This is really getting like the part I want to skip over, you know? Sorcerers. This is the word pharmacias. Where are we get our word? Pharmacy. Literally, if we brought this over, we would say they're the druggists. Oh, the druggists. Ah. Yes, those guys in the white jackets who you know work at Kroger and these different places. So just don't be one of those guys. Don't be a pharmacist and you're okay, you know? No, it's not what it's talking about. That word, interestingly, is used because drugs were used. Drugs were used in order for people to have these hallucinations, to have these uh, illusions, if, 
that they have these good feelings, and the demons would use people who were controlled by drugs to manifest themselves. Now, I understand that there is a medicinal purpose, and God has placed things on this earth for medicinal uses. However, we abuse that. Just as God created man and a woman for uh, a union and for a good purpose, but we, in our own pleasures, misuse what God created for good. God placed certain things on the earth for our good, I think medicinally. But we have chosen to use it and abuse it for our own pleasure. So this sorcerer, sorcerer stuff here, I don't think it's just sorcery, which, it, it, which you can use that. I think it also applies to those who are using and abusing things that God has left out there. I think it is those drug users that are there as well. Now, does it mean that no drug user can ever go to be in heaven? I praise God that's not the case. Because if that was the case, I couldn't go there either. Okay? I don't like this list, man. I mean, this list ping just is just boom, 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 boom. But I praise God for his grace that though you were such some of these things, you're not anymore because of Jesus Christ. The idolaters, those who do what? Do what? No, no, idolaters, those who worship other gods. You know, we always like to look at the Ten Commandments and say, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Do you know what it says in the Hebrew? Thou shalt have no other gods besides me, other than me. And we like to say, well, we don't have any other gods before God. I mean, you know, I mean, he's the big God. He's the, he's the one that I ultimately worship. I just have these other little things over here that I worship and adore. God says, no, I will not share my glory with any other. I am God and God alone. Are you fully focused, fully committed on him? Finally, <laughs> the liars, the liars. The, uh, the, the sudes, the deceived ones, the, the ones who are, are speaking deception. You know, we use the word pseudonym. A pseudonym is what? It's a false name. It's a, it's a pretend name, right? Because nim, nimos is, is, is for the name there. But the pseudo is false, okay, fake. Well, we're told in Titus chapter 1 that God is asudes. He is not false, it's interesting, we're, we're told about Jesus. Jesus is the way, the what? Truth. You know what that word is in the Greek? It's aletheia. Aletheia is made up of two other Greek words. Made, again, a, like asides, a means not, and aletheia means deceptive. Jesus is not deceptive. God is not false. So many, and we'll talk about this in about another month from now, we're going to be looking at the, the attributes of God. But so many times, God is described in a negative way because it's the only way we can comprehend it. What does it mean that something's really true? It means that what? There's no falseness. None. Not one little bit. Not one yoda. Not one tittle. Not one little bitty speck of falseness is found in God. What about you? What about me? Are you really true? Do you speak the truth? Albeit in love, but do you speak truth? I talked to the teenagers a while back. Why is it that most people lie? 
Well, what's the purpose of lying? No, it's not just to get what you want. Avoid what you don't want. It's usually it. It's to protect myself. Because it's all about me. Lying is really the core is selfishness. It's, self it's all about me. Rather than all about the glory of God. So these final declarations are very important because we're told, first of all, as I said before, that these, these words that are written were not to be sealed. Now this is important because in Daniel chapter 12, Daniel wanted to understand. He wanted to understand what the visions were that he was given. And he was told at that time, it's not for you to know, but these words are going to be sealed until the last days, the time of the end, the latter days. I believe those times are now. These words are not to be sealed. In Revelation chapter 10, when that mighty angel came down in the clouds with a rainbow wrapped around his head, and the seven thunders uttered their voices, and John says, I was about to write down what the seven thunders said, but I was told, don't write it down, those words are sealed. I'm not allowed to know those words. But the testimony of this book, it's not to be sealed. It's to be opened up. It's to be declared. It's to be carousoed, proclaimed, preached, heralded from the rooftops. Why do you suppose that is? People get ready. As a believer, as we've gone through this book, What is the landscape, the overarching message of the book meant to you? Is it important? Say again. Depart from evil. Depart from evil and come to me. But this is all about the future, right? And potentially, if, if it, the rapture happens in either Revelation 4 or Revelation 10, whatever, okay, we're going to miss out on some of this really wrathful stuff that's going to happen, right? So what does that mean to me? It ought to be great encouragement to you. This book ought to be a book of excitement to you. I mean, this is, this is your deliverance. Do, do you get it? I mean, to know what is going to happen, what's going to transpire, which is going to go on on this earth, potentially in my lifetime. But I don't have to be a part of it, and neither do you. Because the Spirit says, come, come, all you who thirst, come. Let him who thirsts, come. David said in his psalm, O God, thou art my God. Early will I seek thee, my soul thirsts for thee, as in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. David understood it. He said, I, like I'm out in the wilderness, I'm out in the desert, and I haven't got a source of water around. It's like my, my lips are parched and dried and my tongue is swelling. 
And all I, can, all I can think about is having a drop of water. God, I want you more. I want you more than that. As you look at the ends of this materialistic world, this Babylon the Great has fallen, has fallen. The quart of wheat for a day's wages and two quarts of barley for a day's wages. A third of the, of the vegetation burned up. A third of the waters being contaminated. A third of the nations being destroyed. And yet for all this, men would not repent nor come to God. What is effect? does it have upon you? Do you hunger and thirst for the things of God? Do you hunger and thirst for his kingdom and his righteousness? Or even though you know that this world is in its last days, it's on its last legs, and even though you know that he who overcomes the world is the one who has faith and is the one who is a joint heir, do you still hunger and thirst for the world more? Do you want a bigger slice of the pie? Or do you want more Jesus? I've got to confess that the Lord really rebuked me even this morning with that again. How easy it is to get so wrapped up in the world and the things that that are so meaningless. The things that we find is important, the things that we will rearrange our schedules so that we can do, and a half hour later it's over, and who really cares? Three hours later, the game's over, and did it really matter who won? Great adrenaline, great, great rush while you watched. You got to go to the, to the mall. You got to go to the stores. You got to see all the great deals. You got to, to burden down your credit cards <laughs> and regret it later. Does it matter? Does it really matter when you start to think about the days that are ahead and where you will spend eternity? I heard someone was um, sharing uh, it, was, it was this week or last week, they were talking about a, a man who was preaching on this very topic about being in the presence of God. And right after he had talked about it in, in their presence, while he's in this, he died right there at the pulpit when he was talking about being in the presence of God and what, what would it be like and stating the fact that I state even now, not a one of us has a what? Has a guarantee. And that's a real story. That's a true story. And I think it happened at Moody Bible Institute. Not a one of us has a guarantee that you're going to go home today. And so, I ask, where will you spend eternity? Are you an heir? Are you a joint heir of Christ? Are you an heir of God? Or are you an outcast? Are you one who honestly is being described in this listing of people who won't be there, who won't be permitted to be entered into this glory? I don't do that to, to 
cause you to, to question your salvation, but to make sure of it. If you're here today, through all these messages, I know some of you haven't been here for all of them. Kaylee, you've been here for this one, huh? Anyways, and the reality is, do you know him? Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you placed your trust into him? Are you one of the pistoi, the faithful, the believers who will be there? What do you thirst for? What really makes your mouth, spiritually speaking, water? Is it for the water and the tree of life? For the fruit that, that comes from what he has to offer? And then finally, if that all describes you, and if you know this is all happening, my, my question to myself as it is to you, and that is, what am I, what are you doing to share the good news of God's kingdom? If you really believe that this new Jerusalem is coming, and by faith in Jesus Christ, you get to be a part of it. But without that faith, you will be separated and you will be in the, cast into the lake of fire. If we really believed it, we'd really be a part of this kingdom message. Let's pray. Father, thank you for you. Thank you for your love. Forgive me, Father, for my distractions, my sin, having other gods beside you. from desiring other things more than I desire you. Lord, you've told us not to worry about where we'll get the food and where we'll get the clothing and where we'll get the housing, but you know that we have need of those things. Lord, I look forward to being in your presence. I know that we shall be like you, for we shall see you as you are. And I know that you shall change this vow body that I have and that it'll be, it'll be changed, it'll be transformed, it'll be conformed to your likeness according to the working whereby you are able to do all things to yourself. And that this mortal will put on immortality, this carnal will put on in, in, um, that which is eternal. This corruptible will put on incorruption. And it's all because of your grace. Lord, I pray, as Paul prayed, that you would give me boldness, that I would open my mouth as I ought to speak, that I would proclaim the good news of your reconciliation, the good news of your redemption, the good news of your grace and mercy, that others may be able to be a part and to be citizens, and to be joint heirs, to live in your presence in the new Jerusalem. My mind is boggled by, by what it'll be like, but I believe that that's what you desire. It's not something that I can comprehend here on the earth. It's so much better, so much greater, so much more awe-inspiring than what I could ever come up with. Lord, I pray that as a body of believers, we would desire to glorify you and honor you. 
Lord, that we would be focused upon you. And yes, Lord, I know that there are times for us to, to enjoy fellowship and to talk, but Lord, I pray that even in the midst of those diversions, but Lord, that we would desire to honor and glorify you. And we would use some of the diversions that are in this world as means of making contacts and seeing people come to know you. Again, that would be all about your glory. If we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's turn in our hymn.